0: Also, I'm on an Abdominizer ball today, by the way, so if I'm like extra great, then we can know that that's why. Welcome to Your Wrong About, a show where we tell America what it's
1: wrong about. I'm Michael Hobbs, I'm a reporter for the Huffington Post.
0: And I'm Sarah Marshall, and I'm a writer for BuzzFeed and the New Republic, and also some other places. Today we have a special guest and a special topic. And our guest today is Rachel Monroe, which, Michael, have you read any of Rachel's work?
1: I googled Rachel this morning and I learned (laughs) that I have read a number of your articles and that you have won a number of awards that I have been rejected for.
2: (laughs) I don't think I've won a single award.
1: Weren't you one of the 40 notable women writers under 40? I didn't get that.
2: Yeah, aren't you? Is that an award? (laughs) I didn't get any money. I guess. I guess I hear a word. I think there's a check, maybe.
1: So yeah, tell us about yourself, Rachel.
2: Yeah. Oh, me, Rachel. Um, I am a writer. I live out here in Martha, Texas. I write about many different things, but I write a lot about crime recently for the New Yorker, the Atlantic, many different places. And I'm working on a book about women and crime and the obsession with true crime.
0: And today we're talking about Jonestown, right? Yeah. Yeah. And specifically the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid.
1: Yeah, I was thinking that's where we should start. Like, what should we think about that phrase?
0: Well, I guess the first
2: pedantic thing that one would say about <laughs> it is that it wasn't Kool-Aid, right? That it was flavor oh. the Kool-Aid wasn't even Kool-Aid.
0: Why is it, Rachel, that when there's like something that we misremember in all these complicated dimensions, we start by getting like the most visible facts right? Like everyone has Nancy Kerrigan like getting hit by a lead pipe or a wrench it was a police baton all of the misconceptions with Jonestown it's like we're signaling them by not bothering to remember what they even actually drank like why do we do that
2: uh, maybe it's just the the lasting power of the brand right that the you know, mm. they bought they bought the cheap generic stuff but that word just doesn't <laughs> linger in our heads in the same way
0: that's true can we start by talking about like what's the what do you see as the culturally accepted version of this like when you when the average like john q driveway hears drinking the Kool-Aid, like, what does he think?
2: To put words in, in his mouth, I guess, uh, it would be that you had a bunch of total crazy hippies. I think a lot of people think of Jonestown as being a hippie phenomenon just because it happened in the 70s, and that these these crazy hippies went out and were in thrall of a to a madman who instructed
0: them to kill themselves and they all obeyed. That's what I started off thinking too, I think, that there was just this automaton like quality to the people there.
1: Rachel, do you want to just kind of walk us through it chronologically, like what really happened? Like how did how did the whole thing begin?
0: When do we start?
1: Do you you tell me. Like the formation of the planet Earth
0: four point <laughs> five
1: billion years ago.
0: Well, okay, I know I know a little bit about Jonestown purely through Rachel, because when I visited you in Marfa last spring, you gave me the road to Jonestown because you had just finished reading it. Well, that's where it is. And I remember that we talked about the fact that Jim Jones played a significant role in desegregating Indianapolis. So I feel like that makes sense as a place to to start, both chronologically and in terms of the complexity of the people's church.
2: Yeah, so you have Jim Jones who grows up as a poor kid in rural Indiana. And not from a churchy family, but becomes really interested in church as a child and would preach to his friends, like his little 10 year old friends, which I think is interesting. He, uh, you get the sense that he, have you seen that really creepy YouTube video of the baby preacher who's like a child who's oh. not old? He's a child who's not old enough to say words. I don't know, two or three or something. And he's just, He's in front of some huge church and he's babbling, but he's babbling in the preacher cadence. That's kind of, you get kind of quiet and then you get really loud and passionate. And and he's doing kind of the hand gestures and it's it's really fascinating and really creepy. And when I think of Jim Jones as a young man, I think of him as the baby preacher, mastering these (laughs) these (laughs) cadences and these rhythms that people would respond to, just learning how to stir people up. He was really attuned to that. So he's like a prodigy. Yeah. Like a little preacher Mozart. Little preacher prodigy. And he would, <sighs> he had a bunch of animals and, and the little kids would come to his house and listen to him preach. And he would go to all the different churches and kind of absorb their preaching styles. And then he, he becomes a street preacher. Um, he grows up in a rural area that goes to kind of a more industrial urban zone, becomes a street preacher and is preaching in a lot of like working class areas. Black churches are really interesting to him. He feels drawn to them. He likes the the energy that he finds in those places. And, and that starts to be a home for him. He starts going to black churches and, and preaching to black people. And when he starts his own church, it's really important to him that it's a mixed race church, that it, the congregation is diverse. When is this? This is like 50s, 60s in Indiana. Okay. And it's growing. And I mean, that's the crazy thing about Jim Jones is... He is awful, right? Where it ends up
0: is a really (laughs) awful place. I love how we have to, when we're talking about reconsidering someone's legacy as a pure monster, we're just like, I mean, obviously we're conceding that coercing about what eight nine hundred people into suicide is bad. Like we're not right. saying it's not. However, I never say monster. I don't. I hate calling people monsters. I oh think yeah, that, I hate that too. I, um, I, yeah, it's terrible. Yeah,
1: you guys both write about murderers more than I do, so I call people monsters all the time.
0: Oh, <laughs> but
1: maybe God. I should reconsider that.
0: Well, well, we'll get we'll we'll get into that inevitably. But but isn't it interesting though to think about how he did seem to have this moral giftedness? Yeah. And it was
2: sincere. Yeah, it was sincere. And so, yes, like stipulated bad man. But in the in the 50s and the 60s, and this, I think even when people do know that he had these, he moved in these progressive circles, I think there's a often a misconception that, oh, this was this canny manipulation, kind of in that Charles Manson way. It's like Manson was not particularly interested in the counterculture, but it was he he saw that he could use it, right? I think it was different for Jim Jones, Jim Jones really did sincerely feel like, moved and enraged by the racial prejudice in America. Like that was a real sincere Mm. belief. And you read about the stuff that he was doing in Indiana. And he would, you know, like a, a congregant would come to him, a black congregant would say, you know, I wasn't, I, went, I tried to go to this place for lunch and they wouldn't serve me because I'm black. And he would rally up a whole bunch of other people and like go sit there until they agreed to serve black people. Or he had like an incredible media. He was like a really good media manipulator. So he would he would write letters if, if he found that um, a business wasn't hiring black people. He would write write
0: letters to the local press.
1: He's like a literal social justice warrior.
0: He he <laughs> totally was. And do you have a sense or any theories about where this came from? I mean, do you think that some people are just born able to tolerate less ethical cognitive dissonance than others? Where do you think this came from in Jim Jones?
2: You know, it's really hard because like certainly other – things. Like gender wasn't a big preoccupation with him. It was really like, <laughs> was specifically race and, and sort of the plight of the of black people in America. You know, he grew up as he was kind of an outcast. His family was pretty messed up. He had a hard time. So I don't know if you know, that's sort of a lazy way to psychoanalyze him like he identified with the outsider. He also had a huge persecution complex like that was a hmm. part of his brain that was like really activated <laughs> and so I think in some ways made him kind of want to be hmm. in that space I don't know but he and they hmm. did they did social services they they had a free restaurant where they would serve good meals to to poor people or anybody who showed up they had a they started noticing that he had a ton of elderly black women mostly in his congregation and he would see that they weren't getting health care. So he opens like uh, his wife was a nurse. He opened um, these nursing homes that were either free or super reduced cost um, for people. Like they mm-hmm. were providing. They they saw very clearly. He saw very clearly the social services that weren't on offer and and gave them to people. I mean, so mm-hmm. I guess that's one big thing is that people were drawn to this church, not because he cast some magic spell on them with his googly
0: eyes, but because there was a real, he identified a real need. So I'm going to come in and do the like really bad, you know, true TV voiceover argument so that you can now speak back to it. Because this is how I imagine the true crime voice would talk about it. Jim Jones pretended to care about racial justice, but it was all an ongoing ploy to slowly gain power and money so that he could take a bunch of people down to South America and kill them. I lost the cadence at the end there. But <laughs> <laughs> like, that's what I imagine the argument would be because it always in stories like this ends up being that if someone ends up committing an awful crime, then it was always their long and convoluted plan to do so. And that all of this was just like, you know, he's hiding behind this mask of goodness.
2: I mean, it's not entirely untrue. You uh, when, you're, <laughs> when you read about these books, you also find him talking about things like if we all have to die for the cause, like he's talking about that stuff fairly early, mm, you know? So that idea, okay. that's not like an idea that spontaneously erupts in his head in 1978. Like that's, mm. but I don't, I don't think that that was what he wanted. He just was such a control freak and such a perfectionist. I don't know. You you see, looking back, it's easy to see how the, the threads of what happened were there early on. But, you know, he wanted to have a lot of power. Like, that's the other thing. Mm, so, he drew people right. because he had this social justice warring that he was doing on the, like, side of righteousness and good. But he also manipulated people. He had, he would do those kind of, like, preachery things that like he, he would do these kind of healings. He would heal you and he would be like, this disgusting thing was in you. You know, I took this tumor tumor out of you, and it was like you know a rotten chicken liver or something. Right. And he, he did like fake psychic things, like he would research people in advance and then sort of say, like, I, mm. I feel Sarah that you are in Halifax. Like, oh my god, how <laughs> did you know? His willingness also to like manipulate people's reality was really present early on, and he staged so many fake suicides. What? Really? Really? Fake Fake suicides, fake attacks all the time. I think this started in California. (sighs) So they move from Indiana. They're like, uh, he gets upset with the, the basically, he's too progressive for Indiana. Indiana's
1: not woke enough for the like murdering, faking preacher.
2: (laughs) But it's kind of true. He's like the segregation like really gets him down. And also he's obsessed with nuclear war. So he reads an article of Esquire that's like, Places where he, that are the safest from nuclear fallout, and ends up in California, Northern California. This this uh persecution part of him is like, super activated. He'll he'll kind of manifest it, and this ranges from being like, there are, there are so many bomb threats. We're getting all these bomb threats, death threats, to actually faking being shot. He happens multiple. He does this like
0: constantly. What. <laughs>
2: Like I, Jim Jones, pretending to be shot again, and by this point he's like his. his, They've got all these. It's a very like Angelina Jolie setup. He and his wife have where they have like (laughs) multi like adopted orphans from Korea and like some adopted black children, and then their own children, and then some adopted white children. So they have this like this big family, big diverse family, and he'll get his like sons to kind of do this fake shooting thing where he'll, you know. He'll be outside of his church and then like all of a sudden shots ring out and he's like, I told you, I told you I was under terrible threat. They're all after me. And then, you know, he'll like run behind a tree or something and then spontaneously heal himself. And then his bloody, his bloody shirt would like put his bloody shirt on display at the church.
0: Do you feel like Jim Jones just woke up sometimes and was like, I just need a fake getting shot today. Like, I just need it.
2: Yeah, exactly. But it comes out of that whole church thing that he was doing. where He's like, well, you know, like, whatever it takes to get the people in the mindset, right? It's theater, I guess. It's like you create this spectacle. Total theater. And then he did one also. He did like he had this group of kind of, as these people always do, this inside group. I think they're called the Planning Commission. And at one point, he like he's like, let's all at this meeting, let's all drink this wine, and they all drink the wine, and then he's like, I just wanted to tell you guys all that wine was poisoned. Uh, we're all gonna die now. What? And then a few people start like dying. Oh. Uh-huh. And everybody else like, and then the people are kind of not sure what the uh, what's real or not because the people who are dying kind of seem like they're faking it, like they're be you know when people fake die and it's just like. Sort of, Right, bad acting and then he says actually never mind you've drank this poison you're gonna die if you try to leave this room to get medical help you will be shot a woman actually does try to leave and one of his security guards shoots her but there's a blank in the gun that's just like these crazy theatrical things that he would stage and then he says actually that was all just a loyalty test and he does this stuff over and over again so people the sense of what's Mm. real and what's not real Gets
0: really fuzzy, I think, for people. And you just stop taking it seriously, I bet, when things like that happen.
2: And I don't think that it's all of these people were dupes and thought this stuff was really happening. I think they understood, at least some of them have later come out and said, you know, like, yeah, we knew some of this was was fake or was staged, but it was... The the theater of church, the theater of community, binding them all together, it was almost like a metaphor that he was enacting. Hmm. So they're in California for a while, become really popular, entrenched with the democratic... State politics. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) He, like, has tea with Rosalind Carter and Walter Mondale. Like, he's hanging out with top, top people. Wow. And he becomes, like, a really powerful political figure hanging out with, like, Black Panthers and stuff. Black Panthers are kind of like, we think we like this guy because he's a revolutionary socialist. But the kind of bad news, the more popular he gets, the more press starts to pay attention to him and that freaks him out and then also a thing that people don't know about jim jones is i'm so excited people always assume that the megalomaniac cult leader is coercing female followers into sexual relationships which jim jones totally Mm -hmm. did jim jones Mm -hmm. also fucking his male followers Wait,
0: what? Whoa.
2: Much less none. Yeah, fucked them all. And <sighs> yeah, and with the men, it was a much more dominant thing. He was obviously always the top. And wow. he needed all of the women to say, like, Jim Jones, I'm so overwhelmingly sexually attracted to you. And he needed all the men
0: <laughs> to say, like, actually, I never realized, but I am a homosexual. Uh-huh. So he's just able to enact all of his sexual fantasies. Like Yeah.
2: All these men aren't really real men. Huh, Which is, it was a wow. weird thing that he had, but anyway, he had gotten arrested for lewd conduct, I believe, like soliciting someone in a a man in a public bathroom, and he was real hmm. freaked out that that news was going to come out as these reporters start circling around, looking at the finances, looking at the stuff,
0: and and what's the level of interest in him at this point like is anyone trying to get him on like cult busting or anything like that at this point i mean cult busting in some ways exists after jonestown because of jonestown interesting okay so we'll get to that i guess i didn't know
1: that he was famous before the massacre i thought it was only after the massacre that we even heard of this guy so like what was he doing in San Francisco? Or it was San Francisco, right?
2: San Francisco and LA, you know, they had a fleet oh, yeah. of buses. They would travel around. So, he, I mean, he was doing political activism and also, like, really super grassroots, like, a lot of housing stuff. Again, it's like you kind of have to believe that his heart was really in it because if what he was trying to get was glory, he wouldn't have picked these really small-scale issues. So it was... It's just huh. like, oh, a lot of these elderly people of color are being kicked out of this this public housing because it, they want to redevelop it. And he would stage huge protests against that, like really huh. kind of like mm. the local things that mattered to the people that he was preaching to. And there was communal housing. And again, he had this like media empire yeah, like a direct mail list with, I think, 50,000 people. Wow. Some of that is soliciting donations, right? So they have like a ton of money coming in. But it's also rallying people to these causes. Yeah. How big is the church at this point?
0: I think a few thousand. I think maybe 3,000 huh. 3, or something. And is it a Christian church? Like, what are his actual religious beliefs as such? Or what is he preaching? And then, I guess, what are his beliefs? Yeah, exactly. Because I think... <laughs> you know, who
2: knows what's in the dark heart of Jim Jones,
0: who am I to say, uh-huh.
2: but it was ostensibly this Christian church. I think one of the theories that you read is that, that his political beliefs were much more sincere than his religious beliefs and that he used the mm-hmm. religious beliefs as a way to get people to take political action. He would say, you know, Jesus was the first communist. Sure. And he had no qualms, obviously, about like manipulating in a religious Way Because it was for this higher good. So it was, right. you know, ostensibly this this Pentecostal kind of holy roller, mm. miracles and falling down, kind of preaching, laying hands.
0: Just super dominant, talking and talking and talking. Oh my God, yeah, talking
2: forever, <laughs> like endless church services of him just going on and on, you know, baby preacher, all grown up. <sighs> yeah.
0: And like, and David Corrach used to have like 12 hour... Bible study sessions. And didn't Jim Jones he would preach for like would he preach for twelve hours or upwards of that? I
2: don't I'm not sure how many hours, but like certainly hours and hours. I have a good David Koresh twist coming up soon.
1: Ooh. Okay. That you won't like. <laughs> and is he pretty well liked or is kind of the establishment, the politicians, the kind of normies in San Francisco at that time? Uh-huh. We don't trust this guy.
2: What you hear in terms of people who don't like him? tend to be people whose family members have sort of vanished into this church.
1: Ah. And
2: that's where the opposition comes from. I mean, San Francisco's a pretty progressive city at this time, so his the stuff that he's saying is in keeping... You know, donated a ton of money to the American Indian movement. You know, Like, bailed people out of jail after the Wounded Knee uprising. You know, it's like, really, hmm. he's like in there with all these activists, but then at the same time you have these people who are like, I never see my daughter anymore there was that classic cult thing of isolating people from yeah. the rest of the world and so those family members is are where a lot of the rumblings first
1: start to yeah do these Mm. show up in press accounts like are there like gq investigations or whatever where they interview these people
2: it starts out with local san francisco newspapers i think the examiner and then there's a magazine that no longer exists called new west and so you have some journalists looking into it but again you know he is this beloved progressive figure doing all this good Mm. work with a huge media campaign so anytime anybody like he gets the sense that somebody's going to write a negative article about him He it's very Scientology like in that way. He like Mm. gets all his people like just barrage the newspaper with phone calls and letters to say you know how dare you do this or like you know posing as a reader being like. I hate this coverage or just that kind of trying to shut something down. And this was also, you said Mm -hmm. kind of before we had like antennas up
1: for cults, like this was before kind of the phenomenon of cults was known. It was like, Oh, this guy seems nice.
2: Right. And also in terms of like his political legitimacy, he also would lend his media empire or hundreds of willing people who would like call and write letters and stuff and like knock Mm -hmm. on doors he would lend them to candidates who were running. So he helped get the, I believe it was the mayor of San Francisco. He helped get the more progressive guy elected. And then that guy was, that guy was sort of in his pocket a little bit. Mm. So he did have a lot of power at the local level. Like he was really,
0: yeah, he could be a gatekeeper even.
2: Yeah. And he had a, he had like a radio broadcast and was connected with these communities that maybe, you know, was particularly white politicians maybe didn't feel like they had access to.
0: It speaks well of Jim Jones and really badly of America that we can make the argument that he wasn't just heartlessly trying to amass power as fast as possible. Like he did want power, but it was a, it was complicated by other desire, I think, because it's just a self-evident truth in America that no one has ever made a a career on helping elderly women of color. Like just (laughs) that's like, you couldn't pick a worse demographic to help if you wanted to Make a career as a senator. everyone would I mean, today, I think people would see you as being this horrible lover of welfare moms. You know, I mean, it, that's the demographic that gets most ignored by politicians trying to curry favor.
2: I mean, I guess the cynical explanation is there's a maybe a cynical edge to his affection <laughs> yeah. for particularly that population is that. You know, the more people that you have on social security, with like a fixed income or a pension or something uh-huh. coming in, you get them to the church. And in a way, it's at, it's it wasn't just this evil thing of like we want to steal these old women's social security checks. It was it was a communalism kind of thing, right? So he's like, you right. you turn over your check to us. You live in this communal housing, and we will like provide for your food and your health care and stuff. With this money that you give us, they were kind of creating these ad hoc systems of care that were failing otherwise, but it did mean giving up your money and your control. If I didn't
1: know how this all ended, I would probably really like (laughs) him right now, right? Like (laughs) even with the weird media manipulation and even with the weird faking being shot, his heart's in the right place. He's doing good. Like if you're going to have a a problematic demagogue, like I'd rather have a problematic demagogue that's actually trying to make things better for marginalized people. We just had a big mega church in Seattle where it was the Mm -hmm. same thing. This guy who's like controlling the media and amassing all these followers and stuff. But like, he didn't do shit. He was like trying to make things better (laughs) for like rich white people in Seattle. Like, won't someone finally listen to the rich white people, homeowners in Seattle? Like, finally, we have a platform. Like, if you have to have one of these assholes, at least he's like looking in the right direction.
2: Right. And I think that's the really complicated thing about... Jim Jones it I, I mean in some ways i think of him as just being like a total politician and that he's motivated completely by ego mm. but it's it, or it's this blend of ego and cause you know and i think yeah. the politicians are like that too and the politicians are all also terrible people
0: right and terrible in a way that's more insidious but also ultimately kills way more people right and and if you are so
2: convinced of your own righteousness then whatever means it takes is okay. And convinced of your own righteousness. You know, it's all very much like people following him. It's not like, there's nothing about this that is a a power sharing or listening to other people. It's totalitarian. It's super totalitarian. And he was just fortunate, I guess, in that American society was fucked up enough that it gave him plenty of real things to Really
1: nice. So he, he's not setting up an org chart, necessarily. This is not <laughs> corporate governance example.
2: No. And he's super manipulative. And I mean, they would do things like the people in his inner circle, of course, you know, none of whom have outside jobs, or if they have outside jobs, they're you know, turning all over all their money to... To the People's Temple. He would make people sign, like, write out and sign confessions. Mm. I think starting out with, like, adultery, but then ultimately, you know, like, that they had sexually abused their children and sign them. And the oh. idea was, like, if you ever betray us, we're going to release this. He's getting leverage. Totally getting leverage over everybody. Oh. everybody. It's totalitarian in that way, too. Everybody's informing on everybody else. Mm. You know, who's not loyal enough? You get kind of points mm-hmm. for selling, grabbing
1: people out. I used to live in Germany and I did a lot of reading on like how East Germany worked. Ah. The whole strategy wasn't even necessarily to get people to do anything for you. It was just getting enough leverage on them that they could. It was just like getting people spying on their neighbors, who's cheating on their wives, who's gay, who's using drugs. And then you just get these files on everybody. And it's like, you don't even need to make them do anything. It's just like, now Mm -hmm. we know if we ever need you, we know that you're, like, stooping the kids whose soccer you coach.
0: And it's a, it, and it implies a view of society where you just need to be constantly ready to flip on anyone yeah. at any time. Because you never know when, like, the men are going to come.
2: And sometimes you would have them sign just blank pieces of paper. It's like they would write the confession no to way. be written
0: in later. Oh, that's not um, good. But
2: again, yeah, it's this, this atmosphere of, of paranoia and persecution from all sides
0: and was he feeding his congregants this idea of like they want to destroy me and ruin your life yeah they're at the government
2: and and again it's like it's the 70s he's not wrong that the the government (laughs) is you know doing creepy things there are
0: corroborating factors here
2: paranoia is very much validated by things that are going on in the world so he starts reaching out to like the Soviet unions. Like, Will you guys take us? Like, home. Oh, good. Yeah. And, <sighs> and that obviously is, does not go over well. But yeah, his paranoia is not, it doesn't come out of Noel.
1: My main takeaway so far is that I don't think extroverts should be ra- allowed to run things.
0: But introverts, I don't want to run anything. (laughs) Yeah, what introvert, whatever? How are you you (laughs) going to sucker us introverts into running things? Yeah, I mean, because I just finished listening to this like
1: seven part podcast about Bikram Chowdhury, the guy that founded Hot Yoga, Bikram Yoga, Mm. who was like exactly the same. And he ended up raping, allegedly, a bunch of the people that were into it. He ran these like yoga training things that were like total cults. And he would do the same thing where he would give these like three hour long speeches. Mao would give famously like eight to 12 hour speeches. They just love to hear right. themselves talk. They are yeah. incapable of listening or taking in new information. They're incapable right. of of just like thinking as another person. Like the, the ability of empathy seems like the first thing to go, right? That everything is about you. And then, and somehow they're able to get people to like Hitch their trailer to them.
2: Wait, and that—that's your perception of extroverts?
1: Every extrovert is like that. Yes, <laughs>
0: every extrovert
1: is a cult leader. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I, like introversion-extroversion is obviously a huge spectrum, and there's like a, a massive—you know—there's different kinds of extroverts and introverts. But it just seems like it's taken everything I think of about extroverts, but like exaggerated mm-hmm. it by a thousand times. That to right. me is like the ultra 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 extrovert like one of the things that this hot yoga dude always said was that he can't be alone so he has these like women with Mm -hmm. him all the time like giving him foot rubs and stuff and hitler was like that too he can't be alone
0: yeah don't trust someone who can't be alone to like be in a policy making position i would say
1: you know you hear this from politicians all the time and it's it's very benign as a thing like oh i like to have people around but then it does become this like compulsive thing where you just have to have Somebody who you're like bouncing yourself off of all the time and you're not even like listening right. to them or asking them questions or gaining information from them. You're like talking at them and right. yet you still need it, which is totally as an introvert, totally baffling to me.
2: Yeah, if they don't reflect what you need them to do. Then it's like you are being
0: wounded. I find that very scary. You know, I I figured it out. I figured out the best situation for everyone and I'm going to rope everyone into my Emotional reality, my sort of, you know, what works for me, what makes sense to me, it just has to work for everyone.
2: And because anybody who's like, I, I don't want to live this way, I, or even I don't want to, I, I did this for a while, I don't want to live this way anymore, is deeply threatening to his ego because once all of these other people become part of your ego structure, like they're not even real people, they are, they are part of you, and if they defect, it is. deeply betraying to your soul
0: right that makes me think of reading that i've done about the psychology of people who are physically abusive to their partners and how that and how domestic violence like the way from the way that people describe their need to be physically abusive is this idea of the victim of your abuse holding this power over you and like Mm. you the terror of them leaving you and the terror of them not going along with your version of reality and being totally loyal to you. And you just, you have to just make sure that they're on your side through sheer physical force. And it feels like, like the most terrorizing behavior is rooted in, in that terror
1: oh it's like desperation it's like you're desperate not to lose them and you'll do anything including harming them
0: and you're like i just have to terrorize you into validating my beliefs and staying with me and like if i if i can't do that then i'll die like what will happen to me right
2: and you are less real than me like you are fundamental because you're sort of actually just a part of me and that's why it's like this hurts me just as much as it hurts you
1: with jim jones i also imagine he must have at some level been cognizant too that if people were defecting they would start to talk
2: yes right about
1: mm. all the crazy stuff that was going on behind the scenes where it's like the more extreme the inside of the organization gets the more you have to keep those people in because once they go out and start talking to the newspapers it's going to like the whole thing is going to start to fall apart so he must have right. gotten more and more strongly like you have to stay here
2: Exactly, exactly. And, and, the, and the secrets, it's a system that's bound by secrecy and fear. And it just can't abide. There's no looseness there. It's like a very brittle structure. Mm. When once yeah. one person leaves, then it becomes a, a possibility. It's sort of the unthinkable now becomes thinkable. And now are other people going to leave? And whatever perfection that he had in his mind, it's it betrays his idea of like, no, this is great. We're having a wonderful time. Everybody's super happy. It's perfect.
0: So they all have to live like in a compound, or so not
2: not everybody, so not all three thousand people or whatever congregants, but the people who Mm -hmm. were who were closer in lived in these kind of dorm like situations, and Mm -hmm. and there even people who were there was a lot of pressure to you know you don't have. Christmas and Thanksgiving with your family, you have it with the church and Mm. distancing you from
0: other family members who are not members. So you have to show you have no God above Jim Jones. The interesting thing that
2: he's able to do is build this congregation that is majority black, or I think it ends up being something like 45% black women, but also like a lot of guilty hippies who are mostly white and activating them by being sort of like, oh, any, any kind of resistance is a sign of They're bougie. They're yeah, they're bourgeois programming.
0: That's how you get like a guilty lefty to do anything. You're like, oh, rather bougie of you to not yeah, do this. Right.
1: Right. <laughs> I guess there's also probably something I always think about this with Scientology that like at the lower levels, like when you're first getting into it, it's actually pretty great. It's all this like stress relief stuff and you're making friends and it's like you're doing your day job. But then like once a week you go hang out with these like cool new people who are like helping you get your life together. And then it's only as you get in deeper that you're like, oh, this is like maybe not totally in line with my values. But by that point, you've already invested so much time. So you have all this sunk cost and you've made all these friends and you've adopted this as your identity. So that by the time you realize how problematic it is, it's like it's much harder and more hurtful to leave. And so I'm imagining for the congregants that weren't living in the dorms and weren't in the leadership and weren't like signing blank page confessions, it was probably great. Like they're doing social justice stuff. They're meeting all these cool new people. They feel like they're part of a national movement. It was probably awesome. And then it was only once they got inside that they were like, oh, shit, this is not great.
2: Yeah. And especially for, like, elderly people with health issues. You know, Mm. they're being taken care of. You know, it's like they give up their social security check, but maybe they're getting more back. I don't know. I guess that's arguable. You know, they haven't worked for a few years. Like, they have no – many of them have, like, dropped out of school, right? So that makes it harder and harder to go back to any sort of – other world. And yeah, it's like less and less fun as it goes on.
1: It's funny to think about if this happened now that he would, instead of making them sign confessions, he would make them give the company five-star reviews on Glassdoor.
2: (gasps) (gasps)
0: oh my god he would would be like yeah such a
2: yelp terrorist
1: (laughs) (sighs) love it here so yeah how did they get to guyana
2: as he is feeling more and more persecuted as these media stories are coming out there were a couple high profile defections like people from the inner circle there's this custody battle that's like ends up being really dramatic there was like a couple that came into the church he impregnated the wife So she had his baby, ostensibly.
1: That's not great.
2: Yeah, you know, it happens. And then the parents left the church, but essentially, like, the child was more or less kidnapped. So he became, like, really fixated on this kid, as as these guys often are, like, my son, my son, you know, my offspring. I mean, if you're talking about, like, literally, like, this is a part of me, like, my ego structure – Very literalized. Yeah. The press stuff is getting heated. He's worried about the IRS coming. These defections happened. He's got this court case for the lewd conduct thing that he, like, really doesn't want to become public.
0: Does he feel that his congregants would, that that would be a blow to their ability to have faith in him or see him as this larger than life figure?
2: Yeah. I mean, he obviously has some, like, extremely complex things about, like, men having sex with men. So, yeah. And... If it's something that he's in control of, then that's one thing. But although that was always a secret, I think, the sex that he was having with his male followers. So anyway, they like decide that they are going to, it's this sort of like a a plan B, like a plan to sort of flee, a contingency plan. And he's also like, part of him is like, maybe the U.S. government is going to
0: come besiege us. Right, because they were known for besieging people with less reason. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: That makes it much easier to market. Instead of, like, my empire is crumbling <laughs> around me, that you're like, oh, the government right. is after us. We have to go somewhere safe.
2: Right. Oh, that's the classic. Yeah, yeah we are We are too – we're too radical for them. They're going to shut us down. Yeah. But anyway, so they, they decide that they're going to build this socialist utopia in Guyana, which is a former British colony with a socialist government and, like, majority black leadership. So they all move to Guyana. And that's when things start to go a little nuts so they moved. So they have been like have this land that they got Diana to give them, and I mean, also again, it's like the beginning of Jonestown before Jim Jones shows up seems kind of fun. Like you have like a few hundred people there, like young people clearing the land, starting a farm. Like they're all living together and working on this huge noble project. Like they're trying to prove that socialism a racially integrated socialist community like thriving is possible and that's like that feels great I would be
0: so fucking joyfully self-righteous if I were down there at the start of Jonestown you know clearing the land making a new utopia
2: yeah there's like there's fruit and you're doing all this like labor all day and that there's the endorphins from that and you're just like hanging out with a bunch of other attractive young socialist dedicated people like building a better future it's so romantic
1: i can imagine just like all of the insufferable blog posts like oh you got like a lot of emails today like oh that's interesting i was growing papayas and sleeping in the shade of a palm tree
0: okay like the instagrams for the start of jonestown would have
1: been it would just be like your extremely irritating friend on facebook who's just like
0: hashtag blessed (laughs) like hashtag jonestown yeah. yeah I'm. Just, I actually can't believe this hasn't happened yet. It will. We're getting there. And yeah. And this is se Is this 1978 at the start or does it? So I think 76,
2: 77. You know, it's like a slow progression. But then when things start heating up in California for Jim Jones, he moves out there. They start like importing people like really quickly. And at the beginning, mm. it was like all the young, young, strapping people who could do the labor, but then they start bringing more and more of the old ladies and just things get so strained and so intense and it just seems so awful. And Jim Jones is like, Either like just popping a ton of amphetamines, and then when like and not sleeping, and oh, wow. this PA system that you know blasts over the whole community, and he's like hopped up on amphetamines, just like preaching probably for twelve hours. Who knows? Oh, like Lord. all night. You know, you're working in the fields, and Jim Jones is just like
0: ranting in your ear. So it's like North Korea a little bit, where you guess the Dear Leader is constantly talking to you, and in your and life. he
2: actually had had like took intentionally adopted the north korean model which is like work work from 6 a.m to 6 p.m six or seven days a week with like a one hour break for lunch like that i mean he was i think he was writing to north korea too he was trying to he was like (sighs) soviets north korea like trying to find
0: these alliances it's like jim you look at your choices right now like you can see there's something not great about where things are going one
1: of the things that i didn't know growing up I read this history of communism a couple years ago and they said that one of the things that sort of we forget now is that there was a very long period of time where it wasn't clear that communism wasn't working that well. Like for a long Ah. time, a lot of Americans, it was like it was actually seen as a race. Like does capitalism do it better Mm -hmm. or does communism do it better because information wasn't coming out of the Soviet Union and North Korea that this wasn't working and that all the numbers were faked. And that the farms were really Hmm. miserable and people weren't working and the living standards were really low. And so it was only really in the early mid 80s that the consensus formed that like, oh, it really isn't working there. And I think there was Hmm. this weird period where there were actually people in the States that wouldn't necessarily identify as communists, but were kind of like, well, it works pretty well. And Hmm. like, it is worth looking into this because it seems to be working in Russia. The information that we have is that they're growing lots of crops and people are happy and they're living on these farms that do sort of seem utopian
2: yeah i mean both communism and capitalism have strong reasons to spread the brand and yeah, like you know right. smother dissent but then the thing with jim jones is you know part of it is you look at what he built and you're like oh god if only jim jones if you could sort of subtract jim jones from this <gasps> equation yeah would have this like nice this this integrated super progressive activist congregation and you would have this like cool agricultural commune commune in in Guyana, that would be great. That all seems fine. Like, yeah, you can't
0: really subtract Jim Jones from it because it all kind of formed around him. Like he was so central to it because his ego catalyzes like the raw force behind all of this. Totally. Yeah, exactly.
1: There's so much here about like organizational cultures too, that maybe if he had done it I mean, maybe if he wasn't a crazy person, basically, maybe if he had done it in a way where he really was building an organization or he was building structures with succession where it wasn't 100% built on his personality, like if he was installing some form of rule of law and checks and balances in his own structure, maybe it would have lasted longer or maybe it would have been a better force in people's lives. Because the thing with those personality-led cults is that... Once the personality of the person starts to erode, the whole community erodes because they haven't put in mm. any structures in place to support anything other than them. And so it sounds right. like once he starts to lose it and once he's taking methamphetamines all day, then the whole system breaks down because he's the bottleneck for making all of the decisions, I suppose.
2: And I don't think that, that that's not just sort of like an accidental oversight on right. I mean, part. I think to me, like this is the – this is what belies his – his standing as this warrior for justice or whatever is that he didn't do that because that actually fundamentally wasn't he wasn't trying to build kind of these lasting coalitions or something it was Mm. the the fundamental important thing to him was serving his ego he
1: was starting with himself and building everything around it not starting with like the justice and building everything around that yeah
2: right and again to me that's like the politician thing is like you see that in so many people whether they're politics or are good or bad.
1: So is Guyana is is the is the compound expanding really quickly? Is that kind of what puts more strain on it?
2: Yeah, so through 77 into 78 you have people just like coming in to the point where you, you know 50 people a week or something, 100 people a week, couple hundred people a week and then by the by mid 77 you have a thousand people living there. That's a lot of people, dude. And are they eating enough? There. so there's like it's actually kind of bad It probably could have worked as, like, a small-scale social co-op, agricultural co-op thing if they had had time to kind of grow it slowly. But they Mm -hmm. had terrible soil. You have, like, a ton of old people there who can't really work in the fields. Like, definitely not enough food. Things get more desperate. Probably a lot of, like, accountants and stuff
1: that don't know how to, like, plow (laughs) sweet potatoes, too. Like, there's probably not a whole lot of expertise there, either.
2: Right. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. And especially, like, in this place that none of them have any background in just trying to figure this this thing out and people are just
0: hungry jones forgot how hard colonialism can be at times (laughs) exactly
2: um and you know like to his credit he is living in a communal situation it's not he's not doing the rajneesh here's my like parade of rolls royces things like money actually he didn't seem to be all that super materialistic of a dude. He was he was quite mm. vain, egotistical, but he, like, he didn't need stuff. It wasn't like he was mm. living in a much better quality of life. He had, like, a slightly better quality of life. Like, he had a refrigerator with, like, coca-cola in it which most people didn't have but it wasn't like he had a palace he was you know there were a ton of people living in his house and
0: and did he always wear sunglasses was
2: that his look yeah i don't I like that's i feel like that started early on and like the super jet black hair very um roy orbison kind of
0: <laughs> yeah yeah
2: which I don't know if he thought it made him look cool or mysterious, or I mean, I it's, I could see the advantage if you're a cult leader not wanting people to see your eyes. So, how did we get to
1: the ultimate denouement of this that we're also familiar with?
0: And my, and I would add to that question, like, what in your opinion made Jim Jones's psychological situation unsustainable? Because it seems also like he took, like, he wanted all this power over people, and he was given it, and it seems to have you know, made him go a little mad. That's my, my guess in the dark. It's
2: terrible that I always kind of want to blame the amphetamines, but... Um...
0: <laughs> when in doubt. It's like lighting a match and dropping it on dry tinder. There's, a, there's
2: always darkness in these culty spaces, but not only darkness, and then the amphetamines seem to just, like, turn the volume way up mm. on, the, yeah. on the dark parts and the violence.
0: Because of just, like, the mania and sleep deprivation, or...? Oh, he's also doing stuff like like
2: making adults fight each other, you know, no if, way. If like that's, yeah, like, like these sort of public boxing matches, public humiliation of people, you know, like making people be naked in front of everybody, they have like a box, they'll like lock people in this sensory deprivation box.
0: Was he doing any of these things in California? Or does he feel the need to tighten the, the binds on people?
2: Some of it had happened before, like humiliation in front of a group, but it's all just getting like more and more unhinged. And I think when you have people, you're not on the streets of a major US city, kind of like seeing normal people walk around. Your idea of like what is acceptable can maybe be pushed farther. Yeah. You're not like going home and watching TV and being reminded of like that version of reality. You're just subsumed in the same. You're like, yeah, I guess like having adult men like box each other to the point of extreme injury like that's <sighs> that's like a reasonable
1: also i guess these people are kind of trapped there too they need to buy plane tickets right. they need to deal with a language and a culture right. they don't understand to get out of there totally they're,
2: they're yeah. deep in the jungle given up um all their money often that they, they've given up their passports you know oh good oh. they know that the Guineanese government is friendly with jim jones and that then they don't have a ton of information he's increasingly saying we're under siege so this like his staged attacks thing gets like way more intense. It's like if you have an adult man on methamphetamine playing with a lot of guns, because he's got a lot of guns too, like playing at war games, there's this one time called like the six day siege where he's just sort of play acts slash hallucinates invents this like siege from without like he's like the government the government is attacking us like everybody at the perimeter
1: you're kidding
2: no you know uh, like a like a little kid like there's something so childish about it
0: and how it feels like this felt real to him in some way and he was able to transfer his fantasies Right. like, and, and his delusions to large groups of people and to make them real in that way.
2: Totally. Right. And he kind of believed in it. I think it wouldn't have mm. worked if he didn't. So how
1: do we get to drinking the Flavor Aid?
2: <laughs> so basically, we have a growing chorus of concerned parents back in California being like, look, my kid is in Guyana. I have no idea what's going on. There are these news reports coming out from like a handful of these defectors talking about these things that seem pretty extremely controlling and abusive. Um, And and just talking about like, yeah, sometimes like Jim Jones has been talking more and more about revolutionary suicide and like, we got to do what we got to do. And so there's a congressman from California, Leo Ryan, who gets a delegation. He's like, we're just going to go down there and check it out. We just want to check it out. If anybody wants to leave, they can leave with us. He goes down with a group of press people. Jim Jones is like super freaked out about this. Everybody, they do like a ton of kind of media training beforehand, where it's just like, what do you say? What do they, what do wow. you say when they ask you if you like it here? They they come, this like delegation of eight people. And they're like, you know, it seems weird here. It seems intense. But, like, ultimately, it seems okay. Most people, like, seem like they're here of their own free will.
1: It's just like the collective farms that they used to set up for Western journalists in the Soviet Union. It's the same thing. They yeah. do these, like, theatrical mm. farms. And then journalists would come back and totally. be like, you know what? It's a little weird, but it seems to be working. I don't see, you know, mm. why we can't think about it here. Like,
2: Yeah. And so, and then you have, like, a handful of people say that they want to defect. I think it ends up being, like, a dozen People. And there's like some sense of creepiness. Like some people, I think there's a moment where they're like, does anybody want to leave? And nobody raises their hand. And they're like, see, nobody wants to leave. But then like (laughs) a couple like passes like a secret note and is like, hey, we want to leave. So there's a sense that like not everybody is able to speak freely. But then, yeah, ultimately after this two day visit, I think it's a dozen people say that they want to leave. And the congressman is like, you know, ultimately, I feel like positively about this a dozen people out of a thousand is like really not that like one percent of your people i'm that's not a big right. deal like this seems fine to me i'm gonna basically had a good time here and yet he and like the dozen people they like go back to this remote rural airstrip and this sort of assassination happens like the congressman is killed a few of the press people
1: wait what i had no idea about this the someone shoots the delegation
2: one of the people who said that they wanted to defect turned out to be like a double agent or something so he gets on the plane with these dozen survivors and then starts shooting people no fucking way (gasps) meanwhile this truck of guys from back at the farm are like barreling down on the airstrip also shooting um and so you have like I can't remember how many people died, but like four or five people died, cameramen, like an NBC cameraman, like journalists and the congressman. And then there are these two like little planes, the two little planes like take (sighs) off with whoever managed to get on. And then you have, you know, a half dozen people there, some of whom have been shot and are alive. And they're like, fuck, we're stuck out here in the jungle with these people trying to shoot us. Holy shit. You know, and the planes just took off. This is a huge deal. I think Jim Jones, he knows at that point. This is not something that you come back from. Right. Like he knew what he was doing and he knew if this, then that. Right.
0: Well, it's also really interesting that, you know, it seems as if he's dodged a bullet. If he'd been able to not send a death squad, right. That was functionally just so unnecessary unless you have like deep paranoia. He he succeeded.
2: He succeeded. The congressman came and the congressman (sighs) was like, I think this is fine. That's a yeah. huge victory. He had, like, Jim Jones has won.
1: Is that what triggers the flavor Aid? Like, then he, like, he realizes what he's done.
2: It's a classic murder-suicide move, right? But, like, rather right. than just being, like, in one romantic relationship, it's writ upon, you know, a thousand people. I would rather destroy myself than let you go. So, yeah. So, meanwhile, so as he sends these guys off to, like, the, his death squads off to kill the congressman, he's, like ordering the flavor aid to be mixed with the cyanide I think it is and it's like all right everybody line up it's time and and I think there is that sense because they had rehearsed this they had done like basically a a version of this a few months before Mm
0: -hmm. and then
2: the poison had been fake it's unclear I think at first people again couldn't tell like is this real is this really happening but it became really clear really quickly because people died within you know minutes of drinking this
0: stuff and because of how distributing that much of anything goes? Like you would, I would guess that not everyone got it simultaneously. Yeah,
1: I was just going to ask about the logistics of this. Is there like a right? Like, I'm imagining like a lemonade stand table and like a queue of people.
2: I think that's right. And I mean, that creepy thing is that there's a he. He did these audio recordings of all of his speeches, and there's an audio recording of this. Like you can listen oh. to it. if you, if you really want to know about the logistics, you can hear it. Ugh. It's all recorded. You can hear. People screaming. And you can Uh, hear people saying, like, wait, do we really have to do this? Like, can't we go to Russia? You know, and him being like, no, no, no. He's a great manipulator. He started with, like, the mothers and the children. And I think 300 of the, like, a third of the people who died were were children. And so once once you've given the poison to these children, it's hard to maybe feel like you want to save yourself after that. Yeah. Um, And then he also had the perimeter ringed with his security team. Who are these guys with guns? A couple people did manage to flee. But like, really, just like a couple. Wow.
0: And then once you get out, you're in the jungle.
2: Right? right? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You're in the jungle. You know, what do you even do? You're in the jungle. You're completely alone. You're everything you've built your life around has been destroyed. And, And I think and he was able to frame the suicide as this revolutionary act as this as a political act. It wasn't Again, it wasn't sort of like, we're all committing suicide. It was, we're committing revolutionary suicide, that this Mm. is, we're fighting a battle. Like, this is, this is a victory of a kind. And Mm. it was also very much like, if we don't kill ourselves, like, they're going to come kill us tomorrow. So that framing of it, I guess,
0: I mean, I you know, I don't know, these people were super desperate. The classic triangle in interpersonal drama is victim, villain, savior. Mm -hmm. And if you can create a narrative on these people that you've already, you know, already have such psychological power over that, you know, you are the victim, I am your savior, someone else is the villain, I am saving you from this other force that seems like it would be so powerful
2: and these people have been in Guyana for a year or two years they're not getting newspapers they're not getting news (gasps) broadcasts like they have no idea he's he's sort of creating their whole reality and this is at a time when the united states does feel like it's sort of spinning out of control so this these Hmm. stories that he's telling of of invasions and immediate threat and you know like we're surrounded like that doesn't seem as crazy as maybe it sounds from the outside
0: well, that reminds me of uh, like an individual kidnapping case that happened in the 70s. This woman named Colleen Stan was kidnapped by a couple when she was 17 or 18 and then was first horribly abused by the the husband of the the couple and then kept literally in a box underneath the bed a whole year and then had what she called her year out and then had, I think, A couple more years, like in the box. And Cameron had told her this story that she had come to believe about how she had been sold to him and he owned her. And they were being surveilled by this company called The Agency. That like if she tried to go and tell her parents or if she tried to escape, they would kill her. They would kill her family. And she believed it because she'd been kept in a box. And so when she escaped and this went to trial, it was a very hard sell for a jury, because they were just like, why didn't you run? Why didn't you leave? Yeah. Like, why didn't you leave during your year out? Like, why did you believe that? I, you know, and I think there's a sense of like, I wouldn't believe that like, my psyche is uncrackable. Mm. But it's just like, how do you know? You've never been kept in a box. You've never right. farmed in Guyana for two years with sermons on for 12 hours a day, not getting enough protein. We don't know. So how many survivors were there?
2: Oh, there were like only a handful. There were, you know, there were some people who were not at the compound. So they were not in the jungle because they had a house in the capital city. And Jim Jones's sons were on a basketball team. And he sent an order over the radio saying like, okay, you guys, we're all going to do this, right? You know, and they had some people back at home in San Francisco. And basically, like nobody who was not there... Hmm. killed themselves although actually there's one creepy story about a lady who was in the capital city in guiana and she heard the radio like i forget what their code name was but they had some code that sort of meant like all right now's the time for us to all to kill ourselves and everybody else who heard that was sort of like actually i don't think i'm going to <laughs> but this one lady who was like serious true believer was like all right she wow. took her three children with her into the bathroom slit their throats and then killed herself
1: no fucking no. way and,
2: and that is like Whoa! Because because you can sort of make the case that. There's something about this closed world out there in the jungle, like the the sort of peer pressure, the lack of escape, the inability to imagine another way. But like she was in the city. She could have just walked out the door. But no, she was a true believer. She did it. And then there was like there was I think there was like a deaf guy who sort of didn't hear the call to like come to the pavilion. There was a lady who hid under the bed.
0: But it's like talking about the survivors of Hiroshima where it's like, well, it's someone who happened to be like under a rock at that time. Yeah. And nine 900 people died. Fuck.
1: Yeah, 900. It's just... Yeah, these are mind-boggling numbers. At a time when, like, I mean, we, like, rightly consider a mass shooting to be unreal if it's, like, 13 people.
0: Well, the yeah. statistic that, like, I think really impressed on me how big Jonestown was and also how big it was to people at the time was that this was the largest American civilian death until September 11th. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's three decades of nothing was ever as big as Jonestown. And what is the response then? I mean, what happens? Well, I think I mean the super
2: interesting legacy to me is the aware this growing kind of cult awareness movement that comes out mm-hmm. of this where people are and that's just, you know, there's there's a number of other like intense cult actions that happen around this time. But you have these organizations that like talk about, you know, like our young people are being programs like then it's just sort of like you guys are saying there's not necessarily a an huge awareness in the 70s of the way that trauma works or the way that manipulation works and so the cult these cult awareness groups try to make that more known but then you also have the situation sarah this is where david koresh comes in for you ah. is that so the the cult awareness network is run by i think she's the daughter of Leo Ryan, who's the congressman who's killed at Jonestown, and during the Waco siege, she, Mm -hmm. as president of the Cult Awareness Network, makes these, like, really strong statements, like, you need to go in there and you need to arrest this guy by any force necessary. There becomes this, after Mm -hmm. Jonestown, the sense, like, we weren't paying close attention enough, we didn't do enough. Um, And then you see at Waco, like, Mm. we kind of go to the other end of like not being tolerant of these fringe groups.
1: I know there's a um, because a buddy of mine is part of a cult survivors network. And there's like uh, Mm. there's support groups where people can come together and talk about it. And I think like once he had started telling me about his experience, it just dawned on me that it is the kind of thing that if you've gone through it, no one who hasn't gone through it would get it at all. Because there is this right. kind of blaming, or how could you be so stupid? How could you fall into this? But if you grow up in a cult, which many people have, there's probably a lot of shame about telling people afterwards. Totally.
2: Right. And, yeah. and it's, yeah, like just like Sarah was saying, it's easier, more pleasant for those of us who haven't to, to think that that is a flaw in that person yeah. rather than a flaw in like a human nature that we could, it could have been. Right.
1: What was the press coverage like at the time? Like has our cultural understanding of Jonestown changed over time?
2: Because more of the, the survivors were the more high level people and the people who mm. had defected were more high level people. And the high level people tended to be the white hippies. Right. There was this sense of like, Oh, this is another, you know, the, the flower children have been led astray again.
1: Oh, God. It's so just like Mm. the discourse on millennials. It's always like finding a way to blame young people for these like completely (laughs) insane acts that are like,
0: clearly just
1: human. But it's like, oh, well, young people like, if you're a hippie, this is where it gets you.
0: Right. Like some guy brainwashed you and told you to commit suicide. Mm, Maybe you shouldn't have listened to so much Neil Young. (laughs) Exactly.
1: So, Rachel, after, like, researching this, like, what do we tend to get wrong about Jonestown? I mean, other than the details, what you know, what are the lessons that we should take from it versus what we actually have?
2: Well, I think there's too quick of a movement after these things to be, like, any alternative movement, anything that's trying to be an alternative to the mainstream way of life, any sort of communal living, um, anybody with strange beliefs or ideas, anybody who dissents from the mainstream is, like – actually a murderous freak. Mm -hmm. That's just the saddest thing about the way that these things that start out as exciting progressive things end up being fodder for reactionary forces. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, I think it's like, take the lesson of Jim Jones, he identified some real problems in society. And then he thought that he was the solution, not the case. And maybe it's just that the more that we improve social services for all of us as a whole, the less room there will be for these like, charismatic maniacs to come in and be like, I'll save you. You know, if we can like create a more just world where like fewer people are in desperate need of saving, then there's less room for manipulation by Mm. Jim Jones. types,
1: Right. I guess that's what, that's what nobody ever brings up about these, like these local heroes, these local community heroes that you hear about like making breakfast for poor kids and these heartwarming (laughs) stories that that does confer them a sense of power over those people. And that, they then can cash in that power, not always for good means. And most people that make breakfast for poor poor kids obviously do not end up feeding them cyanide. But it does when you have these little pockets of informal justice mechanisms, it it creates a vulnerability.
2: Yeah, exactly. And they're based on individuals rather than sort of like this diffuse network of of care and mutual responsibility
1: right that's accountable Mm -hmm. and transparent
2: yeah it's less sexy it's less charismatic but it's less able to be exploited it's less culty less (laughs) culty